Hello, my name is Hannah Reeve. I'm the founder of Nature Nurtures, where we help social entrepreneurs, passionate teachers and early years practitioners to set up their own outdoor nurseries and projects for children around the UK. Here on the road that led us here, I interview pioneers in education about how they built their businesses and the journey that brought practitioners to their role in working with children. Joining me today is Millie, who brings something very special to children from her beautiful garden in Bristol. Some of you may know Millie from Instagram, where she posts regularly as Millie's Garden. Folks, I think most of you will have seen Millie's work on social media, or at least heard from like-minded colleagues about her. She's an incredibly experienced practitioner, borough school leader, and specialist leader of education for birth for three years. An Ofsted registered childminder, Millie is passionate about holistic well-being, attachment and relationships, as well as outdoor play. Oh, Millie, this bio really makes my heart sing. It really ticks so many boxes uh, for me. It's things that we are so interested in and try to do at Nurture Outdoor Kindergarten as well. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for joining us to share your story. So we're going to find out how you got Millie's garden started. But first, let's go back a few years. Tell me about your beginnings in the earliest sector. Where were you and what were you doing? So I registered as a childminder originally in 2011. So actually this month, it's going to be a decade since I first started working with young children. And in all honesty, the reason I did that was because I'd had a baby and I just couldn't bear the idea of leaving her and going back to work. I wanted to be with her all of the time. So I had the brainwave, I'll set up as a childminder and then I can be with her every day. But actually what started off as just a way of being at home with my baby and earning a little bit of extra money has turned into a passion and something that I know I'm going to stick with long after all of my children are in school. So I've been childminding ever since, so for 10 years, and I haven't worked in any other kind of settings, nursery settings and that kind of thing. I've always just been doing it my own way and on my own terms. But my provision has changed a lot in 10 years compared to when I first started. Wow, so you've got this purist childminder approach that has been your own (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and has evolved over time. That's really special. That's really unique as well, I think, for a decade now. So, wow, lots and lots of experience. So how many children at the moment do you cater for? What are you registered for? So I have six children come to the garden every day. So I always work with an assistant because that's the ratio for childminders, one adult to every three children. And I'm making plans this year to expand and take on another member of staff. So there will be nine children attending from September, which doesn't sound like many children. But to me, that feels like a really big step in um, my provision. Right. So you're expanding. So this is an exciting time to be talking to you then, quite relevant. Let's go back again and talk about your beginnings. So you were you registered as a childminder and that fit in with your family life, uh, which I think is a fairly typical story for a lot of childminders. So what did that look like? How did that start? I think I started childminding in a fairly conventional way. So children would come to my house every day. We quite often went to play groups and childminder groups. I quite often took them to the local park. And there was something that was really lovely about it. But over time, I just became really, really fascinated with who children are, how they learn and develop. Particularly, I've always been really, really interested in attachment and relationships. And that's something that has stayed a very, very central part of my practice even now. And in a way, going back to my roots 10 years ago, starting out in quite a conventional way of childminding, I think you really still get a feel from that as part of the offer for children here. It's very, very much a small group. Children who come here are being welcomed into my family home and garden. And you're getting all of the things that you would expect to get from a childminding setting, which is those really high quality relationships, a home from Mm. home for your child, if you like, and somewhere where they can feel like 
they really become a part of a community. Those early roots are still very much informing what I do now, even though it looks very, very different from conventional childminding these days. Have you always lived in the same, has it always been in the same space or have you moved your, your no, business? No, I've moved my business several times and I am here now where I am in Millie's garden, which is a home with a lovely big garden because of my childminding. So the story is that I was childminding. We moved between a few different houses. We've had a few children of our own along the way. <laughs> I've done lots of learning. I did my forest school training. I did a degree in early years, which was really, really fascinating. And after I'd done my forest school training, I started running a weekly forest school session for the children that I was childminding. So just once a week, we would go to the woods me and my assistant and two children and we would meet another childminder who was also a forest school leader so there would be nine children and we would just have the most lovely morning and I just felt very very strongly that this was the time in the week where the children were the happiest they had the highest levels of well-being they had the highest levels of involvement they were so so involved in their play and even if I hadn't brought anything with me to the session even if I hadn't planned anything they just got so much out of it and I guess after a couple of years, I just started thinking, could it be like this all of the time? Could I be outdoors with children all of the time? And how could I make it happen? I tried a couple of things. I took on a big allotment site so that we had a kind of big outdoor base because the garden in my last house wasn't very big and it was just kind of decked in gravel. It was a bit boring and uninspiring. So the allotment project was really, really fun, but it didn't quite feel the same as just having it on our doorstep. I wasn't really looking to move house, but I saw this house come up on the market very near to where I was living before. And uh, it had this very neglected 200 foot, very overgrown garden. And I said to my husband, I just really, really want to go and see it. And I managed to get an appointment to come and have a look at it. And I actually took some childminder children with me to view the house because they only had one slot for me to see. So we all traipsed up the road to this house. And I just fell in love with it. And I knew that I could set up something really special here and to still have my childminding premises, which is my family home that's registered with Ofsted, but to be able to operate predominantly from the garden. So that's how I've ended up where I am doing what I'm doing now. Wow. So as a childminder then, so when you're looking at your family home, you're also having this unique view of it from a business point of view as well, aren't you? So was it the garden that really sold it? Was that the thing that really tied it up for you? Or is, you know, is, is it the whole picture of the place? We definitely moved for the garden. The house was in a bit of a state when we got it. It needed a lot of work. It really needed a lot of updating. It didn't appeal to us massively. In a way, we were swapping a similar thing that we had in terms of size, the same number of bedrooms, kind of similar location. We've, we've really not moved far from our previous home, but we were moving to somewhere that just needed loads and loads of updating. It had really, really naff interiors. And <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, a strange exchange if you didn't take the garden into account. So it was the garden that we moved for, absolutely. And that's been a massive change in lifestyle, not just for me and my business, but for my family. So you moved there, the garden was neglected. Yeah, that I don't think a lot of work. anything had been done to it for about 10 years. It was, I mean, you couldn't see where the boundary was. So when we bought it, we really didn't know exactly where it ended on either <laughs> side or at the bottom. We couldn't even really get to the bottom of the garden. It was, it was that overgrown. The day that we got the key, there was this tiny little path through sort of brambles and nettles and really tall grass. And we could just sort of wiggle our way through it and have a look down at the bottom of the garden. And we got our keys on the first days of the first day of the summer holidays. So we had six weeks to 
clear it enough that we could begin child mining from the garden in September. Wow. Okay. So tell me about those six weeks, that's intensive work. Did you have a vision for the space straight away or has it evolved around the children? At that point, I was slightly panicking and I just needed to get it safe, <laughs> safe and usable. And all my then child mining families came with me from, so they had, they had all signed up to some quite conventional child mining with a weekly forest school session. And they all decided to come with me to this new setting. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, they're going to come back in September and just think, what has she done? So we basically <laughs> were just digging out bramble roots, strimming, having bonfires. We felled. 14 unhealthy trees and process the wood. We attempted to put up some kind of temporary fencing just to make it a little bit safer. And because the garden was so big, it's 200 foot long, we basically worked our way down it in stages. So after six weeks of summer holiday, we had sort of cleared half the garden to a safely usable space. And on the first day that I opened to children, I just had a bell tent and a few books and some crayons and some wooden blocks and some water. And that was it. And I was like, welcome to your new setting. <laughs> so it's changed a lot in the four and a half years since yes. we first opened up. I think four and a half years is a really good amount of time because because in that time, the garden, not only has the garden matured, but also <laughs> that provision has evolved so much according to the children that come in. Massively so. Um, so what does it look like now? Give us a picture of what from that starting point. So you had your bell tent and a few resources, the, the very important key resources by the sounds of it. Mm -hmm. And then what does it like now? We've changed so much about it, but I suppose in essence, it still feels like this quite nice, wild and asymmetrical space. It's not too tidy. It feels like a wildlife friendly garden and it feels like a garden. It doesn't feel like a nursery setting or an outdoor classroom. And that's something that's really important to me. But it has a lot of amazing facilities. In the first year, we set up running water and warm hand washing facilities. We realised quite quickly in the winter that children were really not enjoying washing their hands in freezing cold water from a bucket. <laughs> uh, so that was a priority. And we really needed to respond to the children. And we were finding that some of the younger children in our group, because we have babies, were not up for spending whole long days outdoors. And they didn't want to be right out in the rain for long periods of time. So we very quickly set up a cabin that is insulated and has electricity. So it's a very, it's basically just a shed that's, that's had some cladding and insulation added to the inside of it. But it's a lovely little tiny outdoor classroom and a sheltered space where we can be. But in the years since that first year, we've added a compost toilet, an art studio, which is in a polytunnel. This year, we've added an outdoor dining area and kitchen so that we can cook outdoors a fire circle, lots of play equipment like swings, rope swings. We have ducks. There's all sorts. <laughs> oh, absolutely fabulous. I love that term wildlife friendly. This is the thing, like you look at teacher Tom's school, for example, and he's talked a lot about his environment and how I think the adult's view of a particular space is incredibly different from a child's view of the space. So, you know, we might walk in and like there's some stuff on the floor, there's a bit of this up there, and then there's this bucket of water and a bit of some, what, you know, what's going on here? And then a child will cut, oh, and something amazing happens. And I think we very much see that at our kindergarten and how that's 
is quite a big space. And as soon as you give that space, the children will fill it. They will, mm-hmm. they will yeah. visit all the areas of that space. I can imagine your children. So you're having very small groups as well. And that is a big space. So how does that work for you in terms of managing the space? It became apparent in the last year or so that the space is in a way too big. Six children to have complete free range of because it's easy to not have sight of them. So We have divided it into sections. Most of it, two thirds of it, is completely accessible to them all of the time. And then the bottom of the garden, we've put a small fence in. They can open it themselves, but they know that they need to ask or tell an adult before they do. Because I realise that if I'm at the top of the garden with a group of children and another child wanders all the way down to the bottom, they really will be out of earshot. (laughs) I need to know where they are all of the time. So it is a huge space and the environment itself, I suppose, it just responds to the needs of the children. I've had a lot of time to watch how they play in different parts of it and develop the garden according to them and their interests and how they interact with it. That feels really important. It's their space and it needs to meet their needs and interests. Oh, definitely. I can really make him reflect on, so we're in our sixth year here and then it's quite a similar trajectory because you open, you have all these basics in place, then the children come in and you really see how they use that space and and how it needs tweaking in particular parts. We did similar, we actually closed, it was such a huge space that we did close off one section and called, the children call it the little garden um, and then there's the big garden and then we've got this cabin that they call the house. And particularly for the two-year-olds, the babies there, uh, that was really important to have that you know bit more contained I think that was important for them so the age of children that you have do you take two-year-olds and all the way through up into eight generally children will start coming here when they're about two and stay until they go to primary school and I quite often have children deferring their entry into primary school so I often have children age coming up to five I do have a six-year-old in my group at the moment as well But I will also occasionally have very young babies. I'll have children starting here from before their first birthday, particularly if this is to allow a sibling to join the group, for example, so that parents can keep their two children in the same setting. My own little girl started when she was five weeks old. So I do have a massive experience of like a different range of ages in the garden, which I feel works really well. I think it's lovely to have babies, toddlers, preschoolers and the odd big kid. Oh, wow. That's also very unique. See, you really have that family approach. You're creating that family environment that you talked about at the beginning in the sense of the environment, but also in the approach that you're taking with the children and focusing on that sibling feed through as well. I mean, that works wonderfully from a business point of view, but also for the children and the families themselves. That That's one of the wonderful things I think that childminders can really target in on and do that in a really, really valuable way because it's it's smaller numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And it is just so right for the children. It feels lovely for these little babies who've been dropping off their big siblings, you know, in their first year of life to then come and join their sibling. I think I've almost never had a cohort that didn't have at least one set of siblings in it in all the years I've been working. So you put up the cabin Can you tell me a bit more about that? Like, for example, what did Ofsted say about that cabin? Has that had an impact on the number of children that you can have? I found Ofsted really difficult to communicate with. When I first moved to the garden, I I tried tried contacting them to say, this is what I'm thinking of doing. I 
think I'm going to operate almost entirely from the garden. We'll have the house as a backup. You know, what do you think of this? And I could get nothing back from them. So I just went ahead and did it because I knew that there were some other places who had set up entirely outdoors at that point. There seems to be a lot more and offer these days. But when I first set up, I think I was probably the first place in Bristol and I didn't really know anyone who was doing it exactly like I am. And then I wasn't actually inspected until last year, less than a year ago. Is that right? No. 2019, I was inspected. So no, coming up to two years ago. So I had been working in the garden for coming up to three years before Ofsted first came here. I don't think the inspector really knew what to expect at all. I mean, I, I managed to speak to her on the phone and say, look, we spend a lot of time outside, so bring your coat and your wellies. But she really had no idea. There obviously hadn't been any note recorded to Ofsted that I was operating from the garden. And I was quite nervous to show her around, but she absolutely loved it. She loved the garden and the outdoor space. At that point, we had just the cabin and the polytunnel. She thought that they were fantastic. And she was really, really on board. I don't think it's necessarily increased my floor space requirement. You know, you have to have a certain number of square metres per child. And that's something that I've been quite interested in because I'm expanding. And I have figured out that I do have just about the right amount of floor space in my house to meet the floor space requirements. So if I had wanted to expand further and have, say, 12 children here, I would need to be able to include the cabin as indoor floor space. And I don't know what Ofsted say about that. And I guess it might be a case of an inspector coming and making a decision when they're there. I'm not sure. I imagine that that would be okay because as you're saying, you've got the floor space, you, you combine the two, although they're still on the same site. It would be, they would call it, it needs to be effective deployment of staff, so staffing in the cabin and staffing in the house. But you're all together outside. So. We're all together outside. I mean, it's a funny, with a childminder registration, there are certain restrictions that aren't in place for nursery settings. For example, I have assistants working with me, but they can only be left with children for two hours a day. I have to be the person who is with children for most of the hours of the day. So I could, if we split the group and I sent my assistant outside for a bit of time without me, that could only be for two hours in the day. So yeah, but I still think the floor space thing works with the cabin and probably the polytunnel as well, actually, because it's sheltered. Absolutely. They're certainly not penned in like in some of the more mainstream settings, I would say, controversially, but yes. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> it's very true. How big is the cabin just out of interest? Do you know the square meterage? It's tiny. It's a 10 foot by 8 foot shed. I think it's 10 foot by 8 foot. And it was just a shed that was left in the garden by the previous owners. We were like, let's turn it into a little teeny weeny classroom. So it's small. It has a peg for each child. So that's where they keep their bag and their coat. And it has a small number of resources. When we first set it up, it actually had like wall to ceiling shelving, just absolutely full of resources. And it wasn't really a space that you could go and hang out. It was more of a place where we stored a lot of stuff and each child had a peg. And as I observed children in the garden, it became clear that they were just really not interested in most of the stuff that was in the cabin. It was just lying there untouched. They wanted to be engaging with the environment and the natural loose parts and just the space. And so I have managed to get rid of kind of like 70% of the resources, if not more, from the cabin. And it now just has a few little resources on offer to the children, which I rotate and some books and things like that. Definitely. We've just done something. So it's interesting, similar timeline. We've just done a big clear out as well. But I think because of how 2020 has been in terms of the global pandemic, we took the opportunity to really have a look at the resources and 
what's easy and what's working and what the children are interested in. Add a skip worth of stuff to chuck over the Christmas or the winter break. So, and that was very satisfying. And then also redistributing resources to other places outside of the kindergarten, because it does detract from the environment. And I think that's so important as the lead practitioner in a, in a space is really having that regular observation of, and I don't just mean that, you know, observation in terms of what's fairly typical in an earlier setting, but I mean, having an overview of the whole, you know, the whole site and how the children are interacting with, with the space itself and each other and what little tweaks need to be made, if any. Can I ask about your approach in early childhood? What inspires you? All sorts of stuff. <laughs> I certainly don't subscribe to any particular approach, but I have absolutely loved studying different approaches. On my degree, we did a couple of modules looking at different approaches, and that totally fascinates me. And I think that I've developed my own ethos, which I call Millie's Garden. I'm trained in forest school, but it's definitely not a forest school. I am very, very inspired by the work that happens in Reggio Emilia. I think that that's probably the alternative approach that resonates the most with me because of the way that it's so grounded in local cultural and political and social contexts. And I love that idea that we are always responding to the children that we have at this time, you know, and everything that we do needs to be constantly evolving and changing and reflecting that and meeting children in their culture and their interests and their needs. So really resonates. I often, the last two assistants that I've employed, including my current one, have been Steiner Waldorf trained kindergarten teachers. So they've definitely brought a really strong element of that into the setting. It's not my background. There are lots of things that I really love about it, but not everything about it resonates really strongly with me. So I think it's lovely to be able to pick and choose little bits of that. There's definitely actually something I'm really proud of in my Ofsted inspection was when the inspector was walking around the garden with me and asking me questions and finding out more about what I do about this and that. And I very deliberately didn't mention any alternative approaches, even though there are some quite strong elements of those in my practice. She was just walking around and listening to me and asking questions. And then she sort of stopped and she said, it's wonderful. I think what I'm sensing is that you're just picking and choosing the best bits of all of these different approaches that work for your children and in your context. And I'm looking around and I can see Steiner and I can see Montessori and I can see Reggio and Forest School, but you're not limited by any of those. You're just taking the bits that are working for you and your children. And that's what makes it what it is. And I felt like she really hit the nail on the head. That's what I'm trying to achieve to just pick out the bits that work for us. Yeah, she did. You it sounds like you had a really, really good inspector with a bit of shared synergy, which... Yeah, definitely. Really good. That's really cool. Tell me about your assistants then. So how do you find your assistants and what are you looking for in your assistants? So I have a few because my husband, Sam, is a primary school teacher and he works with me one day a week. Um, so that's lovely because it just adds to that family feel in the setting. And he's been doing that since our second daughter was born. But that will probably stop this September when our youngest goes to school, because really for him, it's been a way of being involved in the little kindergarten that we're running here and with what our children are experiencing. So he's brought a lot to it. His background in primary teaching, he's specialised in special educational needs and disabilities and also in climate education. So he's brought a lot to the table and a lot of experience and knowledge, which is great. I have been working with a really wonderful assistant called Johanna, who has done her Steiner Waldorf kindergarten training. I just advertised 
the vacancy in a few places, like on forest school sites. She's a trained forest school leader. I think that's how she found out about me and interviewed her and just absolutely loved her ethos and her energy. And she worked with me for a while, but she's on maternity leave at the moment. And I have another Steiner Waldorf kindergarten teacher working with me now called Sophie. And I think that she will probably be around for a little while. I really like having people work with me who are a bit different to me and just bring something different to the table. I think that's really healthy. That's so important as well. I completely see that. And looking back over the years in terms of the different people who've come in and out of our kindergarten and how they shape so much. They don't realise it either, I don't think, how much of an influence they have. Because it's so important as well to have that. Although we have, we do have an approach that we like and we're influenced by lots of other things, but we're also really looking at research-informed practice and keeping up with that and different elements. And, you know, and finding wonderful people like you who are very inspiring and connecting with people like you as well is important. It's great to have different perspectives from the people who are working with you and that's something I've experienced with that if people are coming at it from a different approach is that you can really challenge each other and out of that comes great stuff because it might take you I've certainly by having Steiner Waldorf trained assistants working with me as I've been taken out of my comfort zone and I've reassessed things and seen things in a different light and I think that's really healthy for me it helps me to grow and it certainly helps them to grow so it's just a good thing to have a mix isn't it oh I agree so much that was a really good summing up of it that's exactly what it is we have a Steiner trained practitioner as well and she's brought lots of interesting things because she started with us while she was doing her training and she liked to share you know bits and pieces of what she was learning along the way so that was really fascinating as well for us we're not a Steiner setting by any means but um like you you know there are elements of it that we really like and I think that's the beauty of having your own place you can pick and choose those things that really sing for you that can really enrich practice and make it something unique and special and then like I was saying I think before we started I was saying about how that is really unique to the earlier sector and how lucky we are to be able to explore these different things and how it gets a little bit depressing as you go beyond reception and into year one and up and up and up it's so nice to have that freedom and I think that a lot of people don't necessarily have the confidence to use it. But actually, there's huge scope in early years to work in the way that you want to and to develop a really strong set of values and an ethos that's your own. And I think that the beauty of it is that it can always be responding to changing context. So with your approach, with your environment, the needs of your group are always going to change. You're going to have different demographics. You know, your, your local community will change. The political context changes. Just the individual children that you're working with changes. And then everything changes accordingly. And you're always having to reassess things and be reflective and, you know, meet children in new contexts and new needs, I suppose. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing who joins your team. And what they bring, because like you're saying, it just brings something else and it'd be interesting. But also it's interesting when you get the new cohorts of children in, like you're saying, and how that evolves. I mean, talking about the political atmosphere, I mean, very lightly, I don't think I've ever been so politicised in my life, to be honest. I think this global pandemic has just been, it's been a bit of a story, hasn't it? So how has impacted you and your business? The pandemic, it's been a really, really challenging year. I, I've had a difficult time. On a personal level, I felt quite worried about 
money. I felt quite worried about my family's health. I suppose being a childminder is quite a unique situation because I'm opening up my home to be a COVID secure environment. So it has implications for my own children and my partner. So for example, when we're in higher tiers and the pandemic is a real concern as it is at the moment, if my own girls use the garden on the weekend, they have to wash their hands before they go into it. They have to wash their hands when they come back out of the garden and into the house. And I have to go and clean the garden and play equipment that they've used. So it just feels quite restrictive and it's changed the feel of our family home and our family life very much. I have been mostly open and I've been looking after key worker children. And at the moment, I'm open as usual. So it's been a real mix of a year, the pandemic. Has it affected your revenue in terms of what you would usually be bringing in? I'm actually about to try and work that out this month. I think it has, but I don't think it has massively um, because a lot of my children are funded children and I have still been getting funding even when I am closed. And I have been eligible for some of the self-employment support grants from the government, which have kind of topped up some of my income where it's been hit. So I think overall... I won't have been affected too badly, just a little bit. Yeah, good. I think that was a really big thing at the beginning of this because the self-employed workers were massively forgotten, or it, it, it seemed so. There was a big delay for you guys. I think the Early Years Alliance have done an incredible job of speaking out for the sector and lobbying Parliament with these particular things. They really things. have. Yeah, thank you, Early Years Alliance. <laughs> yes, they have been absolutely fantastic. If you don't have membership, you should, because they do a huge amount for the sector and... I think so often childminders uh, do get forgotten in the big picture. So continuing on this financial thoughts, what were your aims financially at, at the beginning when you set out with this? So it's a bit of a complicated one because so when I set out with Millie's Garden in the first place, the goal is obviously to make a good living. Mm -hmm. And originally I had my own child with me and I've had three children in total and I still have my youngest with me. So I don't make a lot of money at all. My margin of profit is really, really small. And in part, that's because I have an assistant and one of my paying spaces is taken up with my own child. And in part, it's also because the expenses of just building this project year on year have been so high. And I think in the next couple of years, that will start to decline and I will be taking on more children and hopefully earning a bit of a better living. But up to this point, I've only really just been financially viable. And I did a slightly depressing calculation about two years ago where I looked at my income and I looked at the hours I was working. And then I looked at all the unpaid hours that I do, um, which yeah. are massive. And I worked out that I was earning much less than minimum wage, which yeah. was really disheartening. But it's complicated because I have to factor into it that I have my own child with me, so I'm not paying any childcare for her. And that my own children and my family get to experience and benefit from all of the things that running Millie's Garden bring to us in our life. For example, my own youngest daughter has loads of wonderful resources and toys available to her at home that she can use on the weekends and in holiday time that most families don't have and that I have because I'm running an earlier setting here. And we have the most incredible outdoor space. We now have an outdoor kitchen and we can use that on the weekends. So it's difficult to kind of quantify those things and the way that they benefit my lifestyle and family in kind of non-monetary terms. 
mm-hmm. if you're looking if you're looking at the figures i have not been making a very good income but i'm hoping to increase that because i think i really deserve it because i work my socks off and i'm quite highly qualified and i'm quite experienced and you know i put a lot into it and i do feel like us early years folk really deserve to be earning a good income for the incredible dynamic and complex role that we play in children's lives 100 percent 100 percent I guess you're at this point in terms of there's going to be a shift financially from September when your child goes to school and that place becomes available. So that's an exciting transition. And then also from the business point of view, that will evolve. Tell me about how much you're investing each year, because like you're saying, there's a huge investment in terms of your own time and hours. And I think especially at the moment, like we're having to clean resources and do those extra COVID secure practices and procedures. But it also sounds like you've invested a huge amount in terms of capital costs, like insulating the cabin. So tell me about how you go about making those decisions of what you need to invest and how much you're going to invest each year. So it's been different every year, but most years there have been some quite large expenses. So, for example, the cabin, that was a big expense that cost a couple of thousand pounds to get sorted because we wanted to insulate it. We wanted to put some flooring in that would last a bit longer and we wanted to run electricity down to it. So that did cost quite a lot of money. And then the next year we realised that we really needed some proper fencing at the bottom of the garden because what was left from the previous owners was very, very broken. And on the other side of it, there was a six foot drop into a sort of ditch. So that suddenly felt really unsafe and unsuitable and it became a real priority. And that cost £5,000 because it's, you know, big, tall fencing in a very difficult place to access. So, you know, every year there have been expenses like that. This year we've done the kitchen and outdoor dining area. That's cost a couple of thousand pounds. You know, it's there are always these sort of big things. But I feel like now that we have got food, toilet, water, we've got a lot of the basics covered. And maybe from next year onwards, any big expenses would be more kind of luxuries. Then there are smaller expenses which just really add up. Because I'm a childminder, it all comes out of my own income. So it's just things like paper and play sand and paints and, you know, books and just all of those things. They individually are quite small expenses, but actually in the course of a year, they can add up to a huge amount of money. I'm really passionate about children's art and I like to spend money on good quality resources and materials for them to use so that, you know, it costs more. Does that answer your question? Sort it does, of. it does. Yeah, yeah, no, it does. I think it's interesting and I think it's interesting to hear from the childminder point of view because like you say, your finances are so intertwined with that of the childminding business. Do you think about it in terms of being able to separate it or is it very much they do all merge together and that can be really difficult to figure out in terms of exactly how much you're spending on resources? It's really difficult to separate it. Like actually, you know, doing the calculations, but also in my head, because, you know, for example, the outdoor kitchen and dining area, part of that was an expense for my business, but also my family will be using it. So I can't put all of the cost of that through my business expenses. So everything that you buy, you have to look at in those terms if you're a childminder, because your family probably will be benefiting from it to a certain degree. And you may have to sort of claim a certain percentage of the expense accordingly. So that's definitely something if you're going to set up in the way that I have, that's definitely something to consider is that you're going to be taking a big hit from your income on resources if you want to be investing in things like shelters and fencing and that kind of stuff. And anything that you choose to buy in terms of art materials and resources for children to use is also going to come out of your income and it can add up 
Tell me about this outdoor kitchen and dining area, because this sounds really good. It's so special. It's totally transformed the way we use the garden. I'm really, really interested in nutrition and children's food. And when I did my BA in the second year, I did a really big sort of year long research project that looked at mealtimes and children's experiences of well-being at mealtimes. And that really kind of lit a fire in me, feeling really passionate about children's dining experiences when they go to their early year setting. And that to them, this is their first experience of eating out and it should be a really pleasurable experience and it should speak to all of their senses, not just their taste. And so what I found in that research was that children really, really place a lot of value in the environment that they eat in. They like it to be aesthetically pleasing and comfortable They like the atmosphere and the emotional environment to be well considered, for it to be a relaxing and leisurely time where they get to bond with other children and the adults who care for them. And although sometimes in the garden, especially on a lovely sunny day when it feels like we're all having a picnic, that does the natural environment really caters for that. Being out in the elements and eating can be quite tricky because, you know, you're having a picnic and then the heavens open and suddenly your food (laughs) is all soggy. And we love to cook with children as well. And we were able to do that outside using our fire circle and also um, just using like gas camping stoves. But it involved a lot of setup every time that we did it because we'd have to bring lots of stuff from the house and our family kitchen to the outside. And so having a dedicated cooking and eating space is a really really big deal for us it's something that we're very passionate about and it's just enabled us to just it's just really increase the children's experience of having lovely lovely meals in the garden and nice eating experiences it's wonderful i've seen some photos of this on instagram and it does look really special i see little glimpses, really beautiful glimpses of because you've got the lovely chairs as well i think i saw there's an adirondack chair i'm sure i saw in one of them i guess that's yeah there is yeah I've had a glimpse of that. I love to have a look through your feed because, as I said, it's so inspirational. And a lot of it, I can see, you know, that, as I said, there's some really shared interests and values with our own setting. Like, I love that one that's on there recently, because as you find with children, even when you come back in January, February, really, sometimes even into April, May, children are still talking about Christmas. (laughs) Yeah, because it's... (laughs) <laughs> a monumental event for them and it's yeah. it's just such a big deal and with with little ones with two-year-olds we make a big deal out of it in the lead up to it but they don't really know what to expect so people are saying to them are you excited about Christmas and father Christmas is coming and you know they get a sense from us adults that this is going to be a big deal and then it happens and it is a big deal and they need a lot of time to process it We're still very much in Christmas mode in Millie's garden big time this week and I think it will carry on for some time longer yeah yeah yeah. it's fantastic I see particularly in the indoor space sometimes a little bit outdoors we see I think you've got this picture of the silk scarves and we've had exactly this they turn them into a bag Santa's sack and they fill them with all the presents yeah that's (laughs) that's exactly what we've been playing all week at Millie's Garden as well (laughs) so nice to think of children all around the country doing similar things isn't it For us, Christmas is really special and we do a lot of posing questions when it comes to Christmas. We're really interested in what the children bring because everybody has their own version of Christmas. Everybody has experience and family culture and we love hearing that and for them to share those stories. So actually the the excitement can often be in the after bit because that's when they're coming with their stories and telling us about it. We have a couple of families as well who do not share the story of Father Christmas. So we talk about that. You know, we hear about 
how, what their experience of Christmas is, and then other children will talk about Father Christmas because yeah. that's part of their family culture. It gives so many interesting conversations. I, it's just fascinating to hear, isn't it? It really, really is. It's just incredible because actually you can think of Christmas as, as it has its meaning to you, but actually to every child and family you work with, the traditions will be totally different. Their understanding of it will be different. The kind of the emotional environment around Christmas will feel very different to children in different homes and families. It's just, it's a very diverse experience. And there will be people who don't celebrate it at all and people who, you know, like you say, don't do some of the kind of myths and legends around it, like Father Christmas and, you know, elves and that kind of stuff. So, but my experience of bringing together children's ideas and conversations around it is that actually it can happen in such a harmonious way and they're just really open and interested to hearing each other's different experiences, you know, oh, okay, you know, Santa doesn't fill your stocking up, but that's, uh, you know, somebody else does that. And, you know, they're just quite sort of, it doesn't seem to ruin any of the magic for anyone. It just kind of, they're quite open to it, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I think the best conversations happen when there isn't an adult trying to put their own agenda onto it and actually just sitting down and listening and keeping the match up. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) That was an interesting sideline. I'd get very excited after Christmas because it's it's really enjoyable for me. As a setting, do you run year round or are you term time only? We work on a term time only basis and I am currently only open four days a week. Okay. And is that something that you do very purposefully that you'll continue? I think I'll always work term time only, partly because I then get to spend time with my children when they're not in school. And my partner, Sam, is a teacher, so he has the school holidays. And it's just lovely for us as a family to have that time together regularly. But also, I I really feel like I am a much better educator and practitioner if I have regular breaks. I really, really need that. I need to not be cramming in too many hours in the week. And I need to have regular breaks so that I can catch up on just you know, all the basics like admin, but also just refill my cup emotionally. I definitely get like compassion fatigue and I need to be that person who gives so much emotionally to children. I really need breaks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very, yeah. very important for me. I really strongly believe in that. And this is why we don't have anyone in our setting who works full-time hours. They yeah. don't work five days a week. For those very reasons, I think it's such a full-on job that yeah. is so undervalued and underappreciated. It's incredibly hard work to work with children, and it, but it's wonderfully fulfilling and special. Uh, but this is what I think the government relies on is that aspect so that we all don't have to take home a lot of money. <laughs> but it takes so much emotional energy. I think it's so important that there should be time for breaks. And I think especially for young practitioners as well, because those are often the ones who really worked into the ground and yeah. that's a shame because that's when you get burnout and people leaving the sector, particularly these young, you know, these young graduates. They, they need that opportunity in settings, but they should not have to be worked to the bone. It's, 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 no, it doesn't help children. I did a year where I worked five days a week all year round and I was exhausted and I didn't yeah. enjoy my work. I really lost touch with why I was doing it, I suppose. It wasn't so possible for me to be that adult who is just consistently able to meet children in their needs emotionally and to emotionally regulate them and just be a a calm and warm and responsive person all of the time. And I can do that if I'm not working full time and if I have regular breaks and the holidays. Absolutely, because it's humanly impossible to be at your Mm -hmm. best every single day, every single hour. And for that reason, exactly as you're saying, the self-regulation and enabling others to be regulated because of your calm confidence. Yeah. 
holding the space for a child you cannot do that every day you just you no. can't no um so when you're looking after other people's children particularly it's really important and this is why people in our setting do not work those full full-time hours i think it's healthy yeah i agree in terms of time so you you touched on earlier about how much time you're spending how much time would you say typically in terms of a day a session for you and counting the hours in the cleanup and, and all of that how many hours are you working a day let's say so it's changed over the years when i did that calculation a couple of years ago i was having children for nine hours a day but mostly wow. they, they were only attending for eight hours a day but because some started earlier and some stayed later it ended up being nine or even on some days I think 10 hours a day and then there's setting up in the morning there's cleaning up at the end of the day and then there's the paperwork and at that point I figured out I was doing about 14 hours a week that weren't paid so one part of my paid hours of childminding with children which felt like a lot. I think I have reduced that now. I'm only working eight hours a day and I have most children attending just a core session, which is nine o'clock till three o'clock. And then we offer wraparound for the children who need it. And that's a smaller group of children. So that's kind of condensed the day a little bit. It does mean that I'm less flexible for working families, which is a real shame, but it was just something that I had to do for myself and for my family. Because I work from home as well, it's important that when my children come home from school, it's not another three hours before, you know, they can just run around in the garden and do what they want to do. Or I come in and, you know, just be with them in the evening. So that has just sort of slightly condensed the amount of hours I'm working with children. And I'm trying just to streamline a little bit and do less of the paperwork and admin stuff that just doesn't need to be done. Letting go of perfectionism <laughs> a little bit. It's hard to do that. I think I probably still average like maybe eight, nine hours a week outside of my childminding hours in just planning, resourcing. I don't do any written planning, but just preparing for sessions, resourcing, cleaning, and then maybe more now because of COVID and there's so much extra cleaning and sanitizing to be done. Mm. Because just very briefly in terms of going back to your resources, do you find because your resources are outside that you have to replace them often or how do you manage that? Yeah, so I figured out it's been a learning curve. I figured out early on that like art materials did not fare well outdoors. Mm. And in that first year, I spent so much money on art materials because you just you'd buy a set of pencils and they'd just get left out in the rain once and they'd be pretty much you know ruined and same with paper you're buying paper all these things are expensive aren't they and they they don't fare well being stored outdoors so then we built the art studio the polytunnel so we have a proper place to store those and i think storing things properly is the key and looking after things some toys and materials just don't fare well outside like cheap plastic for example does no. not last a long time it just disintegrates doesn't it? it kind of like breaks up so we can't have anything like that in the garden we can have high quality like really well made plastic toys because they mm -hmm. seem to withstand the weather really well same with metal wood has to be looked after it kind mm. of really varies and it depends on what the resource is but some things do not last so well outside and need to be replaced more often but I think I'm becoming more and more of the mind uh, that I don't necessarily need to have those things in the garden so looking back, did you always have an entrepreneurial spirit in you? Did you know that you would be setting up your own business and doing this? No, not at <laughs> all. I was really young when I had my first baby. And when I started child mining, my baby was born when I was nearly 20. And so I started child mining when I was 21. Oh, wow. um, so I really hadn't figured out 
what I wanted to do. I hadn't been to university. Before I was childminding, I was working on the managerial team of a, like an independent and very, very sustainable and ethical cafe in Bristol. And at the time, it was really, really, it was really pushing the boundaries in terms of sustainable and ethical food production, which is now thankfully becoming something people are more aware of. But that was perhaps where I thought I might be going because I was really passionate about sustainable and ethical food. Yeah, so if I had any ideas about what I would be doing now, it would have probably been something to do with food and totally different. Do you cook all of the food for Millie's Garden on site? You do all of that? Yeah, all of the food is homemade from scratch. We try really hard to purchase food as sustainably and ethically as we can. So most food is organic, especially dairy. On the very rare occasion that we do meat, it's always organic and free range. And we're producing as much of our own food as we can. We grow a lot of food here. I think that last year, the children ate something that we had grown every single day. They came in from June till October. So that was quite a good long harvest season. And a lot of that goes on the menu. We forage with the children and foraged food goes on the menu. You know, apple season is great. Apple cake, apple this, apple that. And we now are rearing ducks, uh, mostly for eggs, but also sometimes for meat as well. So we're trying to produce as much of our own food here as we can. Oh, this is fantastic. Huge amount of work that goes into this. I mean, you speak about this so freely and, and excitedly, but I know that you'll be doing so much work in the background for all of this. It's... That it is a lot of hours, yeah. <laughs> I'd, really, I'd take my hat off to you. It's very, very lucky children and very, very Thank lucky you. families. Put your fees up. What would you say to anyone who is thinking about taking the step either into setting up their own nature nursery or outdoor nursery or as a childminder even and looking at the space that they have available? What would you say to them right now? I would say it's something that speaks to you. It's an idea that resonates with you. And if the thought of it just makes you feel a little bit excited, then you should try and grab that idea by the handles and just go for it. It's daunting. It's hard work. You will put in a lot of effort and energy and time. You might well put in a lot of money. But for me, it's been 100% worth it. It's meant that I've been able to work in the way that I want to and that every day the things I'm doing with the children I work with really resonate with my own values and beliefs about what's right for them and about society more broadly. Regardless of that, being outdoors is just such a healthy and good thing. And I get to do that every day at work, which is incredible. And my particular context as a childminder, it's hard work, but it's really, really special to have created this in my own backyard and that my family and I benefit from it. And my friends get to benefit from it when they come and play with their children on the weekend. It feels really special. I think it sounds like an incredible place. And from what I've seen of it, it's an incredible place. I think any child that gets to spend time in your wonderful garden is incredibly lucky and part of a very enriching family unit, ultimately, and, and beautiful small community. Millie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really wonderful to hear your story. And I think the future is looking very bright and keep going. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. I love to talk about what I do and hopefully inspire others to take that step. It's very exciting and well worth it. Thank you.